BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Episode 343 of The Bowery Boys. Literary Horrors of Old New York. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And we are very excited to present our 14th annual Halloween special. 14 years, Tom. Spooky indeed. (laughs) And this will be a very different kind of Halloween special because, of course, it's being recorded in the year 2020. The spookiest year of them all. (laughs) Which is already fantastically horrific. So instead of looking at ghost legends this year, Mm -hmm. we thought we'd pay tribute to New York City's ghost writers. Right, as in writers about ghosts. Ghosts. And other assorted horrors. Today, we'll be telling tales written by four classic writers who lived in and worked in the city during critical moments in their careers. Authors who found inspiration in the city's essential, unique personality, you know, to deliver some of the scariest stories ever written. And we'll be starting the show in colonial New York and wrapping up in the 1960s. And along the way, we'll be reading you excerpts from some of these frightening works of fiction, stories of the insane, the monstrous, and the disturbed. And you know, Greg, what's especially disturbing is the fact that we are still recording remotely. So for the first time in Bowery Boy's ghost story history, we are not in our studio decorated in crazy Halloween lights, as Greg likes to do. <laughs> now, uh, I will say that uh, here in my mini Brooklyn studio, I'm, you know, I'm trying to gussy it up here with some webbing, things like that. Uh-oh. But I do have here, I have custody of Cheryl Crow, our regular, <laughs> mm-hmm. and Bat Damon, mm. our impish little store-bought goblin who will keep his flappy ears open for a shout-out near the end of the show today. But I actually have them kind of posed together so that they're doing a tango, like a Gomez and Morticia Adams tango in tribute to um, Charles Adams, the illustrator, who also has New York connections. Yeah, creepy ones. And so I'm glad to know that you have custody of Cheryl Crow and Bat Damon. I was wondering where she had slipped off to. Um, I'm sorry, Greg, I have to, I have something terrible to admit. I have lost track of Liza Spinelli. 
our our favorite long-legged spider who made her stage debut last year at Joe's Pub. I just I've been looking around. I think that she got mixed into some banker's box or another in my storage unit here um, with some Christmas decorations. Well, I would pay heed before going into your attic next time, or you may see a few hundred Liza Spinelli's. Oh, I do have next to me, however, our favorite jack-o'-lantern, who we named Ichabod in last year's performance. So he's got this demonic, ghoulish grin. And well, Ichabod here will will factor into our first story. And finally, we will have a ghost hanging over this entire show, actually. The ghost of Edgar Allan Poe. Mm -hmm. Now, we recorded an entire show about Poe's life a couple years ago. Today, we'll be turning our focus to four other writers, but his presence will be strongly felt in these stories. So, listener, settle in, find a cozy spot, and join us as we explore the literary terrors of old New York. So I thought that I'd kick off this year's show with a ghostly tale that will undoubtedly be familiar to listeners, and yet you might find that you actually don't know it at all. It's a haunted fable that has inspired filmmakers for years, um, from a Disney animated version to, to a Tim Burton film starring Johnny Depp. It's a tale of a certain horseman who rides through the woods in the dead of night in search of his lost head. For this is the tale of Washington Irving and the legend of Sleepy Hollow. (laughs) A true American horror classic from the early 19th century by Washington Irving, who we have spoken about many times on our show. If you dig back into the ancient archives of our show, there's even an early show about Washington Irving. Lots of scary stuff back there. <laughs> and the name of the story is actually The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. It's mm-hmm. it's not The Legend of the Headless Horseman. No, uh, the horseman is just one of several characters in the story. Although in, in some modern retellings, uh, those characters get dropped or really, really minimized. You know, Disney released a version in the 1940s and re-released it in the 50s uh, called the, the Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Um, and then later, just The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And and Tim Burton would release his Sleepy Hollow, a film in 1999, that really was just the loosest of tributes to this original source material by Irving. And I guess you could really even say that Washington Irving didn't just completely invent this mm-hmm. story either, because this headless horseman is actually based on a much older legend. Right, there had been many other headless horsemen, you know, sort of galloping through European literature. 
especially in the 18th century. But Irving would add some great details to his story, uh, making his horseman the one that we all still talk about and dream about today. Well, Tom, let's learn a little bit about Washington Irving. What were his beginnings? Well, we're going way back because Washington Irving was born in Manhattan on April 3rd, 1783, the same week that the British forces surrendered during the American Revolution, which is probably the reason uh, that his parents were inspired to name him Washington. Now, the family lived uh, in Lower Manhattan on William Street and were merchants. His father had come from Scotland, his mother from England, and Washington was the youngest of eight children. And by when you say they were merchants, do you mean like the whole family? They were merchants, like the siblings were merchants? Yes, Washington's brothers followed in the family business, which was importing, exporting, selling. Uh, But Washington uh, was more interested in pursuing a literary career, which we should note was like really unheard of back then. Nobody was supporting themselves by writing. And in a, a rather creepy parallel to today, when Washington was just 15 years old in 1798, Yellow fever was spreading through the city, and Washington, who already had a fragile constitution, uh, was sent north to live with a, a family friend in the small town of Terrytown up the Hudson River. And it was up there, while living with these friends, that he got to know and got to really love this area. Not just Terrytown, but also the adjacent village of Sleepy Hollow, which was an even tinier collection of homes and farms and a church with a most lovely country cemetery. And was it at this time that he sat down to write The Legend of Sleepy Hollow? No, the story would be written 20 years later. At the time, however, um, he would just kind of take it all in, soak up all the details. And when he was able to move back down to New York, he'd start writing articles for a newspaper in New York. Then he toured Europe for several years, again in fragile health and becoming you know, ever more refined. Back uh, in New York, he studied law. He he published a satirical magazine he called Salmagundi, uh, in which he parodied New York and its history, even famously coining the nickname Gotham in a piece published in his magazine in 1807. What's incredible about Irving here, I mean, remarkable, is that he actually made up a few names or popularized a few phrases that we use today. Not only Gotham, but mm-hmm. even uh, the legend of old Father Knickerbocker. Yeah, in, in 1809, he published a satirical history of New York City, kind of like akin to sort of an, an onion piece, you know, today, if the onion were <laughs> uh-huh. to do a history of New York called A History of New York from the Beginning of the World to the End of the Dutch Dynasty. And his pen name was Diedrich Knickerbocker, um, who he kind of crafted into this cantankerous old Dutch character. (laughs) That book was a success. It made him quite well known and respected, and he was able to land other writing jobs. And obviously, Knickerbocker... Mm -hmm. It's a name that lives on today. I mean, we have the New York Knicks. Indeed we do. I think that the Knicks owe it to all of us to bring back, you know, old man Knickerbocker as a kind of mascot, (laughs) don't you? Who do we talk to about that? Who's the mascot manager? Unfortunately, his writing career here in New York got interrupted by the War of 1812, or more precisely, the family export business did. 
uh, because it was based over in Liverpool. So Washington headed to, to Europe in 1815 to try to salvage the family business. Unfortunately, it went bankrupt and Washington Irving really didn't know what to do. He stayed with his sister Sarah and her husband, Henry Van Wart, in Birmingham, England, and he focused on his short story writing. Henry Van Wart, by the way, was from Tarrytown. But there he would continue to write his stories, sending them back to one of his brothers to have printed in New York, starting in 1819. He wrote this new collection of stories in seven installments, and they were titled collectively the, quote, sketchbook of Jeffrey Crayon, Gentleman. In other words, he was essentially self-publishing his own book here, but doing it in seven installments. Yes, and the first installment included the story of Rip Van Winkle, which was based on his travels uh, to the Catskill Mountains, again, when he lived uh, in Terrytown. He wasn't sure how it was going to sell, you know, and he really needed the money. He wrote from London to his friend back in New York, Henry Brevert. He said, I am extremely anxious to hear from you what you think of the first number, and I'm looking anxiously for the arrival of the next ship from New York. My fate hangs on it, for I am now at the end of my fortune. Fortunately for Irving, it was a huge success. So he kept it up, and installment number six, sent off from London on December 29th, 1819, included The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Written by Irving, but when he was living in London. That's interesting. And even more amazing, the Brits liked it. They liked something written by an American writer. Mm, yeah, it was novel back then. Very novel. All this to say that Washington Irving's The Legend of Sleepy Hollow was printed in New York in 1820, 200 years ago this year. Tom, I think it's, just, it's time to take us to Sleepy Hollow, okay? I've got my lanterns lit. Guide us to Sleepy Hollow here. Well, let's let Washington take us mm. 30 miles north of the city to the tiny hamlet of Sleepy Hollow. Here he is writing in 1819 about the village he'd last visited 20 years before. Mm. The story starts, quote, In the bosom of one of those spacious coves which indent the eastern shore of the Hudson, there lies a small market town or rural port, which by some is called Greensburg, but which is more generally and properly known by the name of Terrytown. This name was given, we are told, in former days by the good housewives of the adjacent country, from the inveterate propensity of their husbands to linger about the village tavern on market days. Be that as it may, I do not vouch for the fact, but merely advert to it for the sake of being precise and authentic. Not far from this village, perhaps about two miles, there is a little valley or rather lap of land among high hills, which is one of the quietest places in the whole world. A small brook glides through it and just murmur enough to lull one to repose. And the occasional whistle of a quail or tapping of a woodpecker is almost the only sound that ever breaks in upon the uniform tranquility. He continues later, From the listless repose of the place, and the peculiar character of its inhabitants, who are descendants from the original Dutch settlers, this sequestered glen has long been known by the name of Sleepy Hollow. A drowsy, dreaming influence seems to hang over the land, and to pervade the very atmosphere. Some say that the place was bewitched by a high German doctor. 
others that an old Indian chief held his powwows there before the country was discovered by Master Hendrick Hudson. Certain it is, the place still continues under the sway of some witching power that holds a spell over the minds of the good people, causing them to walk in a continual reverie. They are given to all kinds of marvelous beliefs, are subject to, to trances and visions, and frequently see strange sights and hear music and voices in the air. The whole neighborhood abounds with local tales, haunted spots, and twilight superstitions. The dominant spirit, however, that haunts this enchanted region is the apparition of a figure on horseback, without a head. It is said by some to be the ghost of a Hessian trooper, whose head had been carried away by a cannonball in some nameless battle during the Revolutionary War, and who is ever and anon seen by the country folk hurrying along in the gloom of night, as if on the wings of the wind. His haunts are not confined to the valley, but extend at times to the adjacent roads, and especially to the vicinity of a church at no great distance. Indeed, certain of the most authentic historians of those parts allege that the body of the trooper having been buried in the churchyard, the ghost rides forth to the scene of battle in nightly quests of his head, and that the rushing speed with which he sometimes passes along the hollow, like a midnight blast, is owing to his being belated and in a hurry to get back to the churchyard before daybreak. And the specter is known at all the country firesides by the name of the Headless Horseman of Sleepy Hollow. And that is how you kick off a ghost story for history nerds with not only <laughs> a spooky goblin figure, but also an alternative history of an entire town. He's cheeky, really. Throughout this story, he pokes fun at everybody uh, and everybody's alleged histories. And he pokes fun at the old Dutch population that still lives around here, uh, many of whom were farmers. Uh, but he really pokes the most fun at the protagonist of the story, a gangly, awkward schoolteacher from Connecticut named Ichabod Crane. Crane, he writes, is, quote, exceedingly lanky, with narrow shoulders, long arms and legs, hands that dangled a mile out of his sleeves, feet that might have served for shovels, and the whole frame most loosely hung together. His head was small and flat at top with huge ears, large green glassy eyes, and a long snipe nose, so that it looked like a weathercock perched upon his spindle neck to tell which way the wind blew. But other than that, um, I'd swipe right. Now, the, <laughs> now, is this, I don't get it, is this a, a spooky story or comedic story? I think it's both. It's just sort of fun folklore, right? With a with a little touch of spooky. And that's kind of how the whole story goes. He dangles before us this legend of the Headless Horseman, a Hessian soldier who had lost his head by cannonball during the Revolutionary War, you know, which is grounded in history because just decades before, during the war, this part of Western Westchester was kind of a no man's land. It was crawling with Hessian soldiers who were fighting on the side of the British. But then he's also telling this humorous love story, a kind of love triangle between the awkward Ichabod and the object of his love, the lovely Katrina Van Tessel, who was, quote, the daughter and only child of a substantial Dutch farmer. She was a booming lass of fresh 18, plump as a partridge, ripe and melting and rose-cheeked as one of her father's peaches. 
and universally famed not merely for her beauty, but for her vast expectations. Um, something tells me that old Katrina Van Tassel here is a bit out of reach for Ichabod Crane. Yeah, you'd think so. Although Ichabod thought he had a chance. You see, he wasn't just the local school teacher, but he was also the choir master at the old Dutch church in Sleepy Hollow. And Katrina was in the choir, which allowed for more contact with Ichabod and allowed him to give her private lessons at her house. I should also note that this was the very same church where the headless Hessian was buried and where nightly it was said that the horseman hopped on his horse and rode off in search of his head. And was there any competition for the attentions of Katrina here? Oh, he had to face a a prankster, a, quote, burly, roaring, roistering blade of the name of Abraham, or according to the Dutch abbreviation, Bram van Brunt. He was broad-shouldered and double-jointed, having a mingled air of fun and arrogance. From his Herculean frame and great powers of limb, he had received the nickname of Brom Bones. And of course, he loved Katrina as well. So, so there was this kind of ridiculous rivalry between Brom and Ichabod when one fine autumn night, Katrina's father... Baltus, old man Van Tassel, decided to throw a party, a which he called a quilting frolic at his large farm. Ichabod in, was invited. He, he let school out early. He was so excited. Borrowed an old broken-down horse named Gunpowder from the farmer he was lodging with and headed to the party. And meanwhile, Brom arrived on his horse, which was a, a vicious thing, named Daredevil. Now, Irving spends many pages describing the party, which is really interesting, and the old farmhouse is packed with delicious food and music and merriment and dancing. As the night grew darker, the talk turned to local legends and to ghost stories and to, quote, the headless horseman who had been heard several times of late patrolling the country and it was said tethered his horse nightly among the graves in the churchyard. On one side of the church extends a wide woody dell, along which raves a large brook among broken rocks and trunks of fallen trees. Over a deep black part of the stream, not far from the church, was formerly thrown a wooden bridge, thickly shaded by overhanging trees, which cast a gloom about it. Such was one of the favorite haunts of the Headless Horseman, and the place where he was most frequently encountered. And had any of these partygoers. Had they ever even seen the Headless Horseman? Well, naturally, Brom Bones had not only seen him, he'd raced him three times. He claimed that he'd raced alongside him on his horse to the bridge, only to have the horseman vanish in a flash of fire. Alas, finally, this quilting frolic, this party, broke up, and uh, Ichabod started home on old gunpowder, having once again failed to woo Katrina. The night was dark and silent, and Ichabod was getting nervous. Irving writes, quote, In the dead hush of midnight, he could even hear the barking of the watchdog from the opposite shore of the Hudson. No signs of life occurred near him, but occasionally the melancholy chirp of a cricket, or perhaps the guttural thwang of a bullfrog from a neighboring marsh. The night grew darker and darker. The stars seemed to sink deeper in the sky. He had never felt so lonely and dismal. 
So then, in the darkness, uh, he approached a giant tulip tree, which served as a kind of local landmark. Its dry branches were rubbing and swaying and groaning in the breeze. And then a little farther on, he arrived at a, a small brook, which crossed the road. And a few logs had been thrown over the stream to form a bridge. And Gunpowder, for some reason, his horse didn't want to get moving across that bridge. He kicked his horse to get him to move, but Gunpowder stopped next to the bridge, refusing to cross. Now was not the time to stall. But then Ichabod heard something. Irving writes, quote, In the dark shadow of the grove, on the margin of the brook, he beheld something huge, misshapen and towering. It stirred not, but seemed gathered up in the gloom, like some gigantic monster ready to spring upon the traveler. Who are you? He received no reply. He repeated his demand in a still more agitated voice. Still there was no answer. Though the night was dark and dismal, yet the form of the unknown might now in some degree be ascertained. He appeared to be a horseman of large dimensions, and mounted on a black horse of powerful frame. Gunpowder, by this time, had started galloping away, but the horsemen kept up, riding along just next to them. Ichabod sped up, and the stranger did the same, and they continued next to each other, through the darkness. Ichabod couldn't really make much out of this other rider. However, quote, on mounting a rising ground which brought the figure of his fellow traveler in relief against the sky, gigantic in height and muffled in a cloak, Ichabod was horror-struck on perceiving that he was headless. But this horror was still more increased on observing that the head, which should have rest on his shoulders, was carried before him on the pommel of his saddle. Ichabod kicked gunpowder, desperate to quicken his pace. But the horse shot off course instead, plunging down a valley, down the hollow, toward the bridge that spans the creek to the back of the churchyard. In the chase, Ichabod's saddle became detached. It fell to the ground, and Ichabod threw his arms around his horse, desperate to keep from falling to the ground. If he could just make it across the bridge, he'd be safe. Gunpowder shot across the bridge, made it to the other side, and Ichabod turned to see if his headless companion had stopped. Irving writes, quote, Just then he saw the goblin rising in his stirrups, and in the very act of hurling his head at him, Ichabod endeavored to dodge the horrible missile, but too late. It encountered his cranium with a tremendous crash. He was tumbled headlong into the dust. The black steed and the goblin rider passed by like a whirlwind. And that's the end of the story. Wait a minute. Like, that's the final? Like, that's the end. What happened to Ichabod? Like, what? where did the horsemen go? Like, what, did they call reinforcements? What happened? Well, Irving explains that when gunpowder was discovered the next day, wandering about without a saddle and without Ichabod, people started searching. They found tracks down by the water, and they found Ichabod's hat, which was floating in the brook, which they searched, but they didn't find Ichabod. And did they end up finding the horseman's head? Alas, no head. But they did find the smashed remains of a pumpkin. Now, the locals chattered immediately about the incident. They, they quote, shook their heads and came to the conclusion that Ichabod had been carried off by the galloping Hessian. 
and had the horseman carried him off? Well, it depends on who you ask. Several years later, a farmer who had been traveling reported back that Ichabod was alive and well and living in some distant part of the country. In a happy twist, he'd become a lawyer and then a politician, a newspaper reporter, and a judge. So he'd done pretty well. And whatever happened to uh, Katrina and Brom Bones here? Well, unsurprisingly, they'd, they'd gotten married. And, and Brom, Irving notes, quote, was observed to look exceedingly knowing whenever the story of Ichabod was related, and always burst into a hearty laugh at the mention of the pumpkin, which led some to suspect that he knew more about the matter than he chose to tell. Hmm. So, can we assume from his demeanor that it was Brom who actually was the horseman? Well, Irving only says that, quote, the old country wives maintain to this day that Ichabod was spirited away by supernatural means. And it is a favorite story, often told about the neighborhood round the winter evening fire. But he adds, quote, the schoolhouse being deserted soon fell to decay and was reported to be haunted by the ghost of the unfortunate pedagogue and the plowboy loitering homeward of a still summer evening has often fancied his voice at a distance chanting a melancholy psalm tomb among the tranquil solitudes of sleepy hollow What's marvelous about this story is that Sleepy Hollow is, of course, a real place. Mm -hmm. It is a village that is just north of New York City in Westchester County. Uh, you and I have been there a few times. What, what's actually there now that people can visit? Well, a number of things. I would strongly recommend getting a copy of the, the story and reading the whole thing for yourself. The version that I just told was a bridged version combining Washington Irving's prose and my own. I had to skip over some great stuff and some wonderful characters. I recommend hunting down the historically annotated legend of Sleepy Hollow uh, with historical notes by Henry John Steiner, who is the village historian of Sleepy Hollow. Uh, puts it all in sort of historical perspective. Now, today, the old post road that Ichabod travels along um, when he's heading home Broadway is still the main road. It's Route 9, linking Terrytown and, and Sleepy Hollow. You can drive or actually walk between the villages of Terrytown and just north of it, Sleepy Hollow, in the direction of the old Dutch church. You can see approximately where the bridge over the brook would have been. Uh, there's a bridge there today called the Headless Horseman Bridge. To commemorate roughly the spot, it would have been actually the, the real bridge that he galloped over at the end would have been farther upstream, more toward the back of the church. And the church, of course, itself, which dates from the 1690s, is still there. It was, it was even old back in Irving's day. You can peer in the windows, as I did, and you can check out the choir loft. I looked in and imagined Ichabod, you know, leading a group of singers inside. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And then, of course, just outside the church windows, there's the church cemetery. The, the, the gravestones are all about the church, dating back from the 1700s and 1800s. If you look closely, you'll notice that many are old Dutch family names. Some are written entirely in Dutch. And if you really look carefully, you'll spot some familiar names from the story. In fact, there's a whole cluster of Van Tassels. And yes, there's a Katrina or as it's written in Old Red Sandstone in Dutch, 
Catriana, born November 10, 1736, and died January 10, 1793, 56 years old. And this story, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, was published 200 years ago this year. Mm -hmm. But of course, the career of Washington Irving um, was really just kicking off. In fact, he would stay in Europe until 1832. He wrote, he hobnobbed with royalty, he came back to New York quite celebrated. And then, you know, to come back to our story, three years later in 1835, he would buy an estate, kind of run down, in Terrytown, which was situated right on the Hudson, which he named Sunnyside. And he would, you know, fix it up and he would live there throughout the rest of his life. Washington Irving died at Sunnyside on November 28, 1859, at 76 years old, and was buried just up the hill from the Van Tassels and the old Dutch church in Terrytown. And we'll get to three more disturbing tales after this. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Tom, I hope you're enjoying your donuts now after recounting that epic horror story. I just shoved a pumpkin spice donut into my into my gourd, um, <laughs> if you will. I mean, very fitting, you know, pumpkin donut after the Headless Horseman. Think of all the donuts you could have made out of that smashed pumpkin. To a soundtrack of the Smashing Pumpkins. <laughs> Ooh. Anyway, well, for our next story, we're going from an author who defined New York City, who loved living in New York City, to another writer who grew to hate it. But it's that foul taste that it left that would help influence his most famous works. But the name of this story is The Monsters of H.P. Lovecraft. H.P. Lovecraft is an author that I have personally always found very unsettling. Now, Tom, are you familiar with Lovecraft's work? To be quite honest with you, I'm, I know his name and understand he has quite a reputation, but I don't know that I've ever read his stories. Well, but you are familiar with Stephen King, 
yes, I'm, I'm assuming. Yes. And you also know a lot of things that have been described as Lovecraftian horror. Okay, mm-hmm. so many 80s horror movies like The Evil Dead, Tom Ghostbusters is often considered Lovecraftian. And of course, the new HBO show Lovecraft Country also does a riff on his particular horror stylings. Wow. Using Lovecraft as an adjective, Lovecraftian, Mm -hmm. what does that even mean? Well, Lovecraftian evil is based on the idea of monsters and evil deities, something which exists outside the surface of reality that is indifferent to our existence. And when man comes into contact with it, they're either driven insane by it or they become obsessed or even enslaved by it. His influence upon the genre is so great that his monsters seem to stand in the shadows of many modern works of horror, from the movies of Guillermo del Toro, like Pan's Labyrinth and The Shape of Water, to the books of Neil Gaiman. Well, I'm, I'm certainly familiar with them, but back to H.P. Lovecraft... What's his story? What does HP stand for? HP stands for Howard Phillips Lovecraft, born on August 20th, 1890. He was raised in Providence, Rhode Island, a very sickly, dour child in an unconventional household within a lavish Victorian mansion. Unfortunately, his father was institutionalized for mental illness uh, related to late-stage untreated syphilis and died when Howard was just a boy. So then he was raised by his mother and his grandfather, who was a wealthy industrialist and a Freemason who instilled in young little HP here a love of poetry, classical literature, and fantasy. So then here in this... Victorian Gothic mansion. It sounds to me like he had quite a privileged childhood. In a wealthy household, although his grandfather died when he was 14, and the family was no longer able to keep up this sumptuous home that they had, and so they were forced to move into more modest dwellings. Now, throughout his teen years, he was constantly on the verge of a nervous breakdown. He was a very nervous child. Yet it was also during this time, perhaps not surprisingly, that he began to write horror fiction. And then flashing forward by his late 20s, early 30s, he had become actually a rather successful short story writer in this particular genre due to the success of pulp magazines such as Weird Tales, which first published in the year 1923, and which would give Lovecraft the ability to really begin developing his very strange universe here. But all of this was taking place up in Providence, Rhode Island. So how did, mm-hmm. he, how did Lovecraft come down to New York? Well, that's all thanks to a woman he met named Sonia Green, who lived in the neighborhood of Flatbush in Brooklyn, and she worked in a Manhattan hat shop. So he met her in the early 1920s, and on March 3rd of 1924, Howard and Sonia got married at St. Paul's Chapel in Mm. Lower Manhattan, so like right next to City Hall. They then moved in together into her Flatbush home at 259 Parkside Avenue. Now, the building is very near 
one of Brooklyn's oldest surviving landmarks, the Flatbush Reformed Protestant Dutch Church. Another old Dutch church. Our second one this episode. Not surprising. Well, the, the church was founded in 1654 under the direction of New Amsterdam director Peter Stuyvesant. Although the present church here in Flatbush dates around 1798, as do many of the graves in its old cemetery. This naturally served as a place of great interest for Lovecraft, who walked among its stones and took inspiration from the names of those long-dead Brooklyn families. But if he's here, if they're living here in Flatbush in the 1920s, this is also the era of the Brooklyn Dodgers and, and Ebbets Field here in Flatbush. Yeah, he lived about 10 blocks just south of Ebbets Field, although Lovecraft was not the sort of person to hang around with people who frequented baseball games. You see, already by this time, okay, in 1924, Lovecraft had developed into a crippling xenophobe. He was horribly racist and anti-Semitic, looking down upon the immigrant populations of New York as being beneath him, as being subhuman. You know, after all, Lovecraft was related to New England blue blood, and he obsessed over that and obsessed over colonial roots and ancient lineage. And so then why did he feel drawn to New York City, which was a celebration of immigration? A city of bountiful populations? Right. Well, because of his marriage, which of course became a problem for him then late in 1924 when Sonia lost her job at the hat shop and she ended up finding work in Cleveland, Ohio leaving Lovecraft here in Brooklyn to fend for himself. Lovecraft actually moved to a new place by himself, moved into a boarding house at 169 Clinton Street in Brooklyn Heights. Ostensibly, he moved here to be closer to a small circle of literary friends that he had made during this period. However, as soon as he found himself on his own here, in an immigrant neighborhood, surrounded by people from different areas of the world, many of whom spoke different languages, well, Lovecraft fell again into nervous, anxious fits, practically starving himself during this period. And as we covered in our recent shows on Brooklyn Heights history, here in the 1920s, uh, he would have been living in a boarding house with probably immigrant men who would have been working down um, in the docks along the waterfront. Right, this great Brooklyn waterfront, a bustling waterfront that stretched all the way down from this area down to the region known as Red Hook, where shipping industries of all sorts were there. And of course, various establishments would serve working class men in a far cry, of course, from his Victorian life in Providence. He looked down upon this sector, this whole sector, like a sinister underworld. Not criminals, but people who were literally not human. He even described the boarding house that he was staying here on Clinton Street as, quote, a malignly sentient thing, a dead vampire creature, which sucked something out of those within it and implanted in them the seeds of some horrible and immaterial psychic growth. 
by this point, it sounds like Lovecraft is no longer just merely xenophobic and racist, but also like downright disturbed. Yeah, and this suffocating anxiety would actually manifest itself into a curious short story that he wrote in August of 1925 called The Horror at Red Hook. Now, the story involves a New York detective involved in the search of a missing man named Robert Sidem. I should say that this name, Sidem, is in fact an actual name from an old Dutch family. And during my walk just a few days ago into the uh, Dutch church cemetery down in Flatbush, I actually did come across the tombstone of ancestors by that very name. To quote Lovecraft, Sidem was a lettered recluse of ancient Dutch family, inhabiting the spacious but ill-preserved mansion which his grandfather had built in Flatbush, when that village was little more than a pleasant group of colonial cottages surrounding the steepled and ivy-clad reformed church with its iron-railed yards of netherlandish gravestones. Now, Sidem was at last report, living in Red Hook. And so this detective, his name was Malone, went on a search through the alleyways of this dark and seedy spot in search for the missing man. He heads into the man's basement flat where he finds a locked door. And when he tries to break down the door, instead, he's actually sucked into the darkness, which was behind it. In the caverns beneath the surface of Red Hook, he experiences something most unspeakable, a ritual of human sacrifice, the unholy visage of what Lovecraft describes as, quote, a naked phosphorescent thing upon a carved golden pedestal, attended to by sulfurous minions who in ritual presented to this unholy thing the swaddled, gangrenous corpse of old Robert Sidem. But the unfortunate gentleman was not yet dead. To quote from Lovecraft, The luminosity of the crypt, lately diminished, had now slightly increased, and in that devil light there appeared the fleeing form of that which should not flee or feel or breathe, the glassy-eyed, gangrenous corpse of the corpulent old man, now needing no support, but animated by some infernal sorcery of the rite just closed. After it raced the naked, tittering, phosphorescent thing that belonged on the carven pedestal, and still farther behind panted the dark men and all the dread crew of sentient loathsomeness, the corpse was gaining on its pursuers and seemed bent on a definite object, straining with every rotting muscle towards the carved golden pedestal, whose necromantic importance was evidently so great. In one final spurt of strength, which ripped tendon from tendon and sent its noisome bulk floundering to the floor in a state of jellious dissolution, the staring corpse, which had been Robert Sidem, achieved its goal and triumph. As the pusher collapsed to a muddy blotch of corruption, the pedestal he had pushed tottered, tipped, and finally careened from its onyx base into the thick waters below. 
In that instant, too, the whole scene of horror faded to nothingness before Malone's eyes, and he fainted amidst a thundering crash which seemed to blot out all the evil universe. Ugh. A a phosphorescent thing. Sounds terrifying, and I see now the connection with Ghostbusters. So was this the only story, then, that, uh, that Lovecraft set in New York City? He wrote one other tale during that period, written about the same time as the horror at Red Hook. And the story is called simply He. And was, was He, the story, not Lovecraft, was He also set in Brooklyn? Uh, no, actually. He actually relates to a real-life courtyard in the West Village, uh, specifically at the address 93 Perry Street, a tucked-away place that Lovecraft discovered on a late-night wandering through the village. Who hasn't stumbled upon an old West Village courtyard late at night? Right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) He was so inspired when he found this courtyard that he stayed up all night wandering the city and then bought a composition book and wrote this story in a park, the entire story. This tale concerns a narrator who is Lovecraft himself, who meets the gentleman who lives within that, quote, grotesque hidden courtyard, and then is shown through various different mysterious sorceries, uh, views of Greenwich Village from the past and from the future. These diabolical visions, unfortunately, managed to have the side effect of literally raising the dead from their graves. But, oh, and I'll let you read the whole story yourself to figure out, you know, what happens to the unfortunate occupant of the courtyard. But he does end this tale in a way that essentially speaks for Lovecraft himself. So not the character, but Lovecraft. Quote, I never sought to return to those tenebrous labyrinths, nor would I direct any sane man thither if I could. Of who or what that ancient creature was, I have no idea. But I repeat that the city is dead and full of unsuspected horrors. But I have gone home to the pure New England lanes up which fragrant sea winds sweep at evening. Did he just call New York dead as he ran off for his country house up north? Yes, he did. Indeed, Lovecraft himself would return to Providence in 1926. And it was there that he almost immediately began producing the stories in which he is actually better known today. The tales known as the Cthulhu Mythos, which was a series of loosely interconnecting stories featuring a pantheon of gods known as the Great Old Ones, in vivid and horrifying display, in stories such as the Dunwich Horror and the novella At the Mountains of Madness. H.P. Lovecraft died on March 15, 1937, and he's buried, of course, in Providence, Rhode Island, in the Swan Point Cemetery. Hmm. But if Lovecraft really only published in these 
Pulp Fiction magazines. How did he manage to become such an influence on horror and science fiction writers today? How did he pull that off? Two things, actually. One, during his lifetime and then afterwards, he encouraged other writers to kind of build upon the mythology that he was creating. So, and, and you know, he was creating his own shared universe in an era when writers really weren't doing that. So a lot of writers actually got involved in um, these spellbinding stories that he was telling and expanding them. But then you have to remember who was reading all of those pulp fiction magazines back then. It was all of the future creators, right? The future writers, the future film directors, the future novelists, people like Stephen King. And so as a result, he kind of stands in the shadows of some of the greatest horror stories ever written. Well, shifting gears here, my my next story is going to take us around the world and back in the 1870s and 80s aboard luxury ocean liners where the most delightful little girl named Fanchon Monquer would regularly ride. She'd charm the rich old ladies who were making the same journey before snatching their pearls and selling them off on the black market. For the name of my story is Robert Ripley and the Girl with the China Doll. Yeah, I talk about shifting gears. But so the story, your story here is about a child jewel thief? Well, there's a catch here. Little Fanchon Monquer was not in fact a child, but a 43-year-old dwarf who had been born Estelle Ridley, who managed to pass perfectly for a child of six. She had worked the circus sideshow scene for a while, but she discovered a way to use her talents and her stature that was far more profitable. Estelle, going by the fancy French-sounding Fanchon, was part of a criminal ring of international jewel thieves who operated aboard ships crossing between Europe and New York. That is truly remarkable, and... Is this a true story, or did someone write this? Well, so that's this is the tricky part. You and I have both heard this story for years. It's included in several ghost story books that have been published in the past decade or two, and you'll find many references to it online. But we have had, for years, a hard time tracking down any actual source material for it. You know, where did this story come from? Because it's always told as if it's true, as if it really happened, and that these are real people. The best that I could do was track down an account of the story published in a 1965 Ripley's Believe It or Not True Ghost Stories comic book, uh, which would be reprinted, you know, again in 1971. Uh, The cover, in fact, of the 1971 edition screams weird, eerie, authentic. Comic books from this period, the late 60s, early 70s are mm-hmm. just simply the best. Um, mm-hmm. They're so melodramatic. But of course, the Ripley that you mentioned is a real person that we know and a, a, a person with New York connections. Yes, born Leroy Robert Ripley uh, in California in 1890. He started cartooning for a local paper uh, before moving to New York in 1913 to illustrate cartoons for the New York Globe where he'd start his own strip in 1919, 
that was packed with surprising and bizarre tales, uh, which he would call Believe It or Not. His Believe It or Not strip was a success, and he would move it in the mid-1920s to the New York Post. And then a little later, William Randolph Hearst would start syndicating that strip in 1929 nationally and, in fact, internationally. It seems like we can't get rid of William Randolph Hearst in our <laughs> podcast this year. Of course, he appeared in a few of them earlier this year. And, and so he was a supporter of Ripley. And of course, uh, Ripley stood by the authenticness, the veracity of his stories. Oh, yeah. His comic strip made so much money that he hired a whole team, a whole publishing company. His chief researcher f- for many, many decades was a man named Norbert Perlroth who from the 1920s up through the 1970s would spend 10 hours a day combing through books at the New York Public Library on 42nd Street. Pearl Roth had one main mission. He had he was charged with coming up with 24 incredible, nay, unbelievable but true stories every week. So then bringing him back to the story here, Pearl Roth would then have been ultimately responsible for vouching for this story, which came out in 1965. So we're taking Norbert's word for this story, right? Yes, according to Norbert. So Fanchon Moncare here on these ocean liners is pretending to be six years old. So Mm -hmm. obviously she's not writing alone. No, she had an accomplice, a woman named Ada Danforth, um, who played the part of her governess. So Miss Danforth would get all buttoned up and proper, and Fanchon would get dolled up as the cutest, richest little jet setter you ever saw. And they would board these vessels together. And along the way, Fanchon then would would work her magic at mealtime, you know, up in the restaurant, on deck, um, in the parlor at night. She'd throw on her charm, you know, befriending the, the richest looking female passengers she could hook. And once they'd fallen for her charms, they'd invite her and her ever-present Dolly back to their staterooms. And after a while, she would invariably ask them about their jewelry. She'd ask to try on a bracelet or a, a pearl necklace, much to their delight and humor, but she'd always keep a close eye on where they'd stashed it away. Now, in one panel of this comic book, Fanchon, holding her dolly and wearing a bonnet, is sitting on a bejeweled lady's lap. And Fanchon asks, Ooh, can I see the pretty beads, Duchess? Pretty beads, ha 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 ha. These perfectly matched pearls cost his lordship 50,000 American dollars, but you may see them, child. Fanchon holds them and smiles. Pretty beads. Someday I'm going to get beads like this for Dolly. And then during mealtime or at at night when the coast was clear, the real work would be done, either by Ada Danforth or by co-conspirators elsewhere on the ship. They'd sneak into the posh cabins, into the staterooms, and stealthily snatch up their prized possessions. Passengers would have their belongings searched when the jewels went missing, but Fanchon had the perfect hiding place the belly of her dolly. Because back in the rooms at night with the hot jewels, Fanchon would unscrew the china head off the doll and drop the pearls inside, and down they'd fall deep inside the doll. Once the jewels 
had been reported, little Fanchon would hold tight to her dolly, especially when disembarking in New York. In one panel, we see an inspector, a customs inspector, approach her. Dear girl, the inspector says, well, well, we have to search all luggage, but they don't touch the dolly. Sorry we had to mess up your baggage that way, little miss. Oh, you had to do your job, but you're still the bestest customs man. Bitey-bye. And she waves as Miss Danforth smiles and whisks her away. Then back on shore in New York, they'd head straight for Chinatown, where Fanchon ran a tough bargain, cashing in her stash for cold cash. One panel in the strip shows her sitting cross-legged on a table, smoking a cigarette in the back room, yelling, You sweeten the price or we'll deal elsewhere. Like it or lump it. Such harsh language. My <laughs> gosh. Um, so whatever happened to this grand plan of hers? Well, everything was smooth sailing until they brought on another accomplice, another woman to, to play her governess, a Magda Hamilton. And this is where I should say different versions of the story go in different directions. In Ripley's version, he sends Fanchon and the, the new lady Magda off to Chicago, where Magda allegedly has rich connections who are just, you know, waiting to be fleeced. And once they've pulled off the heist and cashed in on the jewels in Chicago, a smoking Fanchon hands Magda her share, her share of the prize, which is one-third. One-third?! Magda cries in one of the panels. Now wait a minute. We're partners. It's 50-50. Down the middle. But Fanchon isn't having it. I'm this whole operation. The woman who looks like a child. Without me, you've got zero. All right, you little witch. But you'll live to regret it, says Magda. This was unfortunately a bad move for Fanchon. Because Magda, her new accomplice, reported her to the police. And the little thief was locked up for a sentence of many years. And then what about Magda? Well, Ripley's version has Magda off the hook entirely, although other versions um, have her, there's a much more convoluted story, have her serving a quick sentence and then getting out of jail. One source I saw had Fanchon actually getting sentenced to life in prison while Magda only got 10 years and she got off early. And this was on trial here in New York. Oh, so then you actually found evidence then about this trial. Like you found some some details Uh, on it. Well, that was according to a write-up that I found in the Weekly World News, published April 7th, 1981. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Um, I'm telling you, I was really scraping the bottle of the barrel for sources here. That was uh, a story written by a certain Rob Robbins. Anyway, the yeah, sources are hard to come by. But regardless, Magda soon received news that Fanchon had offed herself in prison. She had committed suicide. But unfortunately, she wasn't gone. For she started visiting Magda at night, along with her little... Ghost Dolly. Don't worry, she says in one panel. I haven't come for you yet, Magda. I want you to lie awake nights, never knowing when I'm coming. Then, one night, she says, floating over Magda. Magda Hamilton didn't know what to do. She changed her look. She dyed her hair. Uh, She got married to a rich Staten Islander named Dartway Crowley, who quickly left her, moving to the West Coast leaving Magda alone in the Crawley Mansion. 
we see her in a panel reading late at night in bed. Exactly what happened that night, we will never know, but we figure it went something like this. Magda hears a noise. What was that? Was it the cat? Empress, is that you out there? No, it's not Empress Magda, says a transparent fanchon, holding her doll next to her at the bedroom door. It's the end of your running, Magda. Now you're going to pay the full price for your treachery. No, stop, Fanchon, please! The next panel shows Fanchon lunging at Magda, thrusting her doll at the terrified woman. In the next and final panels, we see a doctor examining Magda's lifeless body. I'll just have to guess it was a heart attack. The doctor's helper adds, But look at the way her mouth is locked wide open. Well, says the doctor, that could be explained several ways, but I can't figure out what caused these strange scratches inside her throat. His helper adds, I'll tell you what did it, Doc. A doll's head. That's what. That's a wild notion, Willie. There's no doll in the room. Naturally, Doc. It was a ghost doll. Just real enough to kill Magda Hamilton. Believe it or not. Some versions actually have traces of doll's hair coming out of Magda's mouth. But that's just also gruesome. I just didn't want to get into those details. (laughs) But the thing is that this story obviously seems to be legend, you know, but it was included in this in this Ripley's strip, which gives it at least the pretense of being backed up by fact. So... We'll just have to kind of leave it there. However, we would love for any of our detectives out there to hunt down any other sources you might be able to find to this story. And you can email them directly to me, tom at boweryboyspodcast.com, subject line, Fanchon Moncare. And I promise to do an update if we uncover anything factual. Well, Tom, let's go from one talented Mr. Ripley to another. Oh. Because sometimes the most horrible things in the world, the most frightening things, are not monsters or goblins or headless horsemen or are ghosts of jewel thieves, but are those things that can be found living right next door. For the name of this story is The Madness of Patricia Highsmith. Patricia Highsmith, and I love her writing. I love her talented Miss Ripley um, as well. In fact, I love all versions of that, including the French, the old mm-hmm. French original. Yes, from 1960. Although, thinking of Mr. Ripley, I mean, so much of that takes place in Italy, right? I don't really think of her writing taking place in New York. Well, actually, although, I mean, she would, of course, live the end of her life in Europe. She lived in New York City for many decades, from the 1920s to 1960. And the city flows through the veins of a lot of her short stories and novels. Patricia Highsmith was born on January 19th, 1921. Wow, her centennial is coming up in just a couple months. Mm Mm-hmm. And January 19th, do you know who she shares a birth date with? Edgar Allan Poe. 
And in many ways, she is the rightful heir to the throne of Poe-inspired horror. For her stories don't rely on unfamiliar monsters. She looks at the everyday world into everyday situations and finds the horror there. From the psychopaths who walk among us, young and old, rich and poor. Who needs to be frightened of something supernatural when it's your spouse or your neighbor or a stranger on a train that's plotting a diabolical murder? Her stories could be found on the front pages of any tabloid newspaper in America because her monsters are real. I don't know if I want this to get real, Greg. That seems kind of creepy, but... Tell us more about Highsmith. She was, you said she was born in 1921. Yes. And as a girl, she actually lives uh, between two cities. She lives between Fort Worth, Texas, and New York City. In Astoria, actually. Um, and she, she lived in New York uh, during these years because her parents were both graphic artists and found oh. a lot of work here. Yeah. By the time she's 13 years old, the family had permanently moved to the West Village and eventually to a home at 48 Grove Street, right off of Bleecker Street. So she's living in the heart of the West Village in the 1930s here with her parents, who are both graphic designers. Very cool. And for Patricia in particular, it was especially advantageous as she grew into a young woman and into the 1940s and realized she was attracted to other women as well as men. Here she was in the village. She frequented many tea houses and bars, and she also loved hanging out at piano bars, including one that was just a few doors down from her parents' house, a piano bar known as Marie's Crisis. Oh, I'm just so happy to hear you say Marie's Crisis. I'm so happy she went there, and I can't wait to be back inside of it. That's all. That's all I'm going to say. Well, she has so much in common with you, at least up to that point of the story, because you have also been into Marie's Crisis many, many times. Well, anyway, she attended Barnard, became an editor of her school magazine, but always preferred the company of those in the village. By her late 20s, like all of us, she was really discovering herself, as it were, bar hopping and attending parties like those of her friend, the photographer Berenice Abbott, uh, who we recently mentioned in our show on The New Deal. Oh my God, she had the best life ever. <laughs> I know, but she was always gallivanting, always with a drink in hand and a different woman every night of the week on her arm. So then by the 1940s, she's in her 20s and really kind of like out on the town. She's a real party girl. Yes, but don't start up the show tunes yet, Tom, because Highsmith had a dark side and one that would come out in her writing at an early age, turning almost instantly to tales of crime and illicit behavior and, of course, murder. Now, according to her biographer, Jun Shenkar, who is the author of an excellent book called The Talented Mrs. Highsmith, quote, from age eight, she wanted to kill her stepfather. She was born to murder. She had the mind of a criminal genius, unquote. In fact, uh, this urge figures into one of her first major stories that she ever wrote, a story that she wrote at Barnard called The Heroine 
um, a story that eventually got sold to Harper's Bazaar in 1946 and was so startling that it won her an O. Henry Award for Best Short Story. Well, the the heroine? Yes. What's, what's so scary about the heroine? Well, it's a story about a Westchester nanny who wanted so desperately to prove her usefulness to the family that she was working for that she decides to set the house on fire so that she can rush in and save the children. Um, I think I'll be stepping back, tiptoeing back away from Mrs. Highsmith at the piano at this point. <laughs> Not so fun anymore, is she? That's dark. That's really dark. Yeah, I mean, and what's especially dark about this story, and in fact, most of her stories, is that we are in the perspective of a mentally deranged person. Like, we, like we're reading, like, they are the center of the story. We're reading the story from her perspective, and many, many of her stories are like this. Now, one unconventional influence upon her writing during this time actually came from a secret career that she took in 1943. And what was that? Hopefully nothing nefarious. Well, that depends on your perspective, I guess. She began writing for comic books. Um, working on a great many styles of comic books, including superheroes, but also Western. And no surprise, she also worked on crime comic books. But why did she keep that a secret? Well, comics weren't a respectable job for anybody, really, in the 1940s, but especially for a woman. And, you know, she actually still had ambitions to work at a real magazine, like Vogue, for instance. But, you know, comic books, they paid the bills. They were, you know... Very, very popular in the 1940s. And at one point, she even worked for a publisher named Timely Comics. And while she worked at Timely, one of her editors attempted to set her up with another young editor uh, who had actually just come back from war, a man named Stanley Martin Lieber, a.k.a. Stan Lee. Now, Timely Comics would later become... Marvel Comics. And of course, Stan Lee would be its iconic editor and publisher. But you're not going to believe this, Tom, but this match didn't take (laughs) between these two, needless to say. (laughs) For many reasons, I'm sure. But hey, at least it paid the bills. Oh, and it definitely did pay the bills. Uh, She actually moved to a new apartment on East 56th Street, near Sutton Place, Mm. glamorous little Sutton Place, allowing her to further develop her writing, including an eventual dive into her first full-length novel, which she worked on in the late 1940s. The name of this novel was called Strangers on a Train. It was released in 1950, and it would change her life. The plot involves uh, a very fateful train ride in which an architect named Guy Haynes meets up with a Lothario and a playboy named Charles Anthony Bruno. Now, Haynes, it seems, wants to divorce his wife so he can marry another woman. Bruno, meanwhile, hates his father, who is withholding a very valuable inheritance from him. So the two of them are talking here, and Bruno tries to convince Haynes on a very sinister idea, the idea of exchanging murders. To quote from Highsmith, Shall I tell you one of my ideas for murdering my father? No, Guy said. He put his hand over the glass Bruno was about to refill. 
What do you want? The busted light socket in the bathroom or the carbon monoxide garage? Guy looked at him in disgust. Bruno seemed to be growing indefinite at the edges, as if by some process of deliquescence. He seemed only a voice and a spirit now, a spirit of evil. All he despised, Guy thought, Bruno represented. All the things he would not want to be, Bruno was or would become. Want me to dope out the perfect murder of your wife for you? You might want to use it sometime. Bruno slammed his palms together. Hey, Jesus, what an idea. We murder for each other, you see. I kill your wife and you kill my father. We meet on the train, see, and nobody knows we know each other. Perfect alibis. Catch? The wall before his eyes pulsed rhythmically as if it were about to spring apart. Murder. The word sickened him, terrified him. He wanted to break from Bruno, get out of the room, but a nightmarish heaviness held him. He tried to steady himself by straightening out the wall, by understanding what Bruno was saying, because he could feel there was a logic to it somewhere, like a problem or a puzzle to be solved. Bruno's tobacco-stained hands jumped and trembled on his knees. Airtight alibis, he shrieked. It's the idea of my life, don't you get it? I could do it sometime when you're out of town, and you could do it when I was out of town. Guy understood. No one could ever possibly find out. And of course, the conversation continues in, in this mad, maddening vein here. Wow, it's so vivid. It's interesting how just hearing you read that, it brings back the whole story. I must admit, I've never actually read the book, but of course, I've seen the Hitchcock film. Came out in 1951. I mean, so, I mean, this the film made her a star. She didn't get paid a lot on it, but it gave her some name recognition. And the movie, of course, has become a classic. Mm. But by then, but by 1951, Highsmith was already working on another book called The Price of Salt. And it would be so different from the rest of her work that it would actually be published under a pseudonym, Claire Morgan. And how was it different? Well, this was more of a romance. This is a rare thing that she wrote that was not some psychological thriller. A romance uh, between two women, an older theatrical set designer and a younger woman who worked at a toy counter at a department store. And this story was inspired in part by Highsmith's own experiences when she was a sales clerk at Bloomingdale's. Now, this book came out in 1952. And this would also be turned into a movie. It did take them a while to make a movie about this, I think, for obvious reasons, but it was worth the wait. Um, That movie is, of course, Carol, which was made just a few years ago uh, with Kate Blanchett in the lead role. Now, three years after Highsmith wrote that novel... She delivered her best-known work, I think, the psychological thriller The Talented Mr. Ripley in 1955. Not only is its central character, Tom Ripley, a New Yorker uh, who lives in Manhattan's Midtown East neighborhood um, at 51st Street and 2nd Avenue, so actually around the corner from where she really lives, Mm -hmm. but... Tom Ripley, no surprise, is also a sociopath 
in, in fact, probably one of the great, quote, likable sociopaths in literature and film. Earlier, I referred to the, the French version that came out in 1960, but the American version made much more recently starred Matt Damon. Bat Damon? <laughs> it, starred, <laughs> it starred Bat Damon and Liza Spinelli. <laughs> but uh, 1960, the same year as Purple Noon came out, that was the name of the, mm. that was the American title of the French version. Well, that same year, that's when Highsmith actually leaves New York. And she would eventually spend the rest of her life in Europe, uh, near the end of her life living in Switzerland, in fact. But Manhattan would never be far from her mind. She continued to write throughout her life until her death in 1995. But back in 1963, this is the year that she left the United States for good, she produced a short story called The Terrapin. Terrapin, like a turtle, right? Mm -hmm. Like the kind of turtle that people eat. Yeah, the edible kind of turtle. In this story, uh, we actually see hints of her own biography, but with a very dark twist. The story is about a small boy named Victor and his demanding and rather insensitive mother, uh, who also happens to be an illustrator. Victor and his mother had once lived in a very nice apartment on Riverside Drive, but she recently moved to a small one-bedroom in Midtown. He no longer gets to see his friends, and his mother treats him like a six-year-old, even though he's actually 11. Do you know, Victor, you are a little bit strange in the head, his mother tells him. You are sick, psychologically sick. Well, Victor went into the kitchen one day and saw a bag wriggling on the counter. He opened the bag to find a small terrapin. He begins to treat the animal as though it were a pet. Victor later meets a boy in the lobby that maybe he could be friends with, but he wants to impress that boy by showing him uh, this little turtle. But when he runs upstairs, he sees that his mother is getting ready for dinner. The terrapin is for a stew, and Victor watches in horror as his mother drops the turtle into the pot of boiling water killing it instantly. Then she removes the terrapin and begins cutting it up on a chopping block in full view of her mortified son. The end of this particular story takes place at night after dinner, according to Highsmith. When they went to bed, he felt afraid of the dark. He saw the terrapin's face very large, its mouth open, its eyes wide and full of pain. Victor wished he could walk out the window and float, go anywhere he wanted to, disappear, yet be everywhere. He imagined his mother's hands on his shoulders, jerking him back if he tried to step out the window. He hated his mother. He got up and went quietly into the kitchen. The kitchen was absolutely dark, as there was no window, but he put his hands accurately on the knife rack and felt gently for the knife he wanted. He thought of the terrapin in little pieces now, all mixed up in the sauce of cream and egg yolks and sherry in the pot in the refrigerator. 
His mother's cry was not silent. It seemed to tear his ears off. His second blow was in her body. Only tiredness made him stop, and by then, people were trying to bump the door in. Victor at last walked to the door, pulled the chain bolt back, and opened it for them. He was taken to a large, old building full of nurses and doctors. Victor was very quiet and did everything he was asked to do, and answered the questions they put to him. But only those questions, and since they didn't ask him anything about a terrapin, he did not bring it up. (laughs) I am definitely getting away from this woman at the piano. I may wait for them to finish the um, the Sound of Music medley, but then I'm definitely getting away from the ghost of Patricia Highsmith <laughs> at the piano. All right. Well, I think oh, this yeah. tune is all wrapped up here as well. Please visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where there'll be a few images uh, that relate to this particular <laughs> podcast. I can't wait to see what you do with Fanchon Moncare. I've got a couple good ones. Um, you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. A huge thank you to those who have joined us on Patreon.com slash BoweryBoys. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BoweryBoys. It is because of your small monthly donations that Greg and I are able to produce the Bowery Boys as our full-time jobs, devoting all of our time to the research and the travel and the recording necessary to produce a new episode every two weeks. We would not be able to do this without your support. And to thank you, if you head over to Patreon, you'll see some little extras and extra podcasts that we have just for our patrons, including the Bowery Boys Movie Club, And next week, we will be releasing a show just for patrons, a new Barry Boys movie club on the film When Harry Met Sally. So you're going to want to hear the backstory of that movie and how it relates to New York City history. Join us on Patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. So thank you very much for listening and have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you really soon. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.